Welcome to the MedTech Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent in regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, engineering, R&D, and other areas for medical device, digital health, diagnostics, and other organizations across the U.S. life sciences sector. Here's your host, Mitch Robbins. Hey, welcome back to the MedTech Talent Lab. I am your host, Mitch Robbins. I'm the founder and managing director here at the Anthony Michael Group, where we help organizations across the life sciences, companies within medical device uh, sector, digital health, diagnostics, et cetera, to build best-in-class uh, teams in areas like regulatory affairs, quality, engineering, et cetera. Um, I'm excited. Today, we have Mr. David Pudwell with us. Uh, David is a, a regulatory expert for both medical devices as well as combination products. Uh, educationally, he has his bachelor's degree in biomedical engineering and his master's in mechanical engineering. Now, here's what's cool. David's actually spent nine years of his career working directly for the FDA uh, as a lead medical device reviewer, as well as uh, after that, spending several years with a medtech organization called Convitech, where he was responsible for developing and growing global regulatory and quality teams as large as 100 people worldwide, while developing new ways of thinking about regulatory affairs for both in-market support, as well as new product development and a digital transformation. Uh, right now, he's running his consulting slash uh, educational based firm called Mr. Regulatory. And Mr. Regulatory, I'm sure Dave is going to share more with us, but it really started as an educational platform, uh, primarily, you know, discussing all things regulatory, guidance documents, things like that um, on his YouTube channel. And I know he's in the process of growing the content on that channel, which I'm sure, like I said, he'll, he'll tell us more about. But he's also providing consulting services to a variety of startup organizations across the medtech space when it comes to regulatory strategy and really helping uh, organizations primarily who don't yet have a regulatory in-house force, be able to define the right path uh, uh, and uh, gain access to the market. So without further ado, David, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here, Mitch. Well, the pleasure is mine. I'm, I'm glad that you're here. And I think we're going to be talking about a few interesting things today um, because I love the vantage point that you bring. You, you've worked for the FDA. You've seen it from that perspective. You've worked for an actual sponsor, right? The organization. And uh, for somebody that has that diverse diversity of experience, you really have such a well-rounded overview of what goes into product development on both sides and how to think like the FDA, but also think like, like a company. Uh, and so we're going to get into that, but I, I want to start and kind of go uh, by going backwards a little bit about you know where you began and where your roots were from, um, because I know back in the day you worked for St. Jude Medical, right, as an engineer? Yeah, absolutely. And that's and then from there you ended up transitioning to the FDA. From there I did. Yeah, I uh, I actually was working in a field sales organization, so uh, uh, working um, with the sales team as uh, as a trained engineer. Uh, right out of undergrad uh, and long hours on the road driving, you know, in, in uh, it was the greater Minnesota area where, where I was based. But, uh, you know, you, you drive three or more hours out to a clinic or to an implant. And, uh, and then I would be there while the device was placed, uh, interacting with the 
cardiologists and electrophysiologists. So that was that was my introduction to medical devices. Was very hands on uh, and, and and engaged. And then um, FDA was ramping up hiring of engineers, and they came across my uh, resume because I'd gone to Case Western, and one of my um, uh, former classmates, a couple of years ahead of me, was working at FDA and had gotten a bunch of resumes from uh, from Case and. Uh, so they ended up calling me, uh, calling me up, and uh, ended up working out. Uh, it, it, it's a long road. If you, if anybody does want to get hired by the government, I don't know that there are a lot of people out there. Sort of a niche group, maybe, who would be interested, but expect it to take a long time. Um, uh, from when I got an initial uh, offer, yeah, yeah. You know, when when I got from when I got an initial offer to when I to when I joined, it was uh, it was about four months, and so that's a long time. For a candidate to wait, I, you know, you sort of think about that from an HR, yeah. you know, sort of onboarding, you know, standpoint. I get get there and sort of comment about it to a couple of people. It's like, yes, yeah, you know, oh, when you know, when did we start this process? Oh, it was this, you know, September, and I joined in, you know, in, in January, sort of first day on the job, you know, in in in, uh, in January of two thousand and and eight, and. Um, I say, oh yeah, that's uh, that's really something because uh, we don't think we've ever hired anybody that quickly before. <laughs> and, and, from, and from talking to them now, it's, it's it's the same kind of process, you know. I think uh, I was talking with some some engineers who were just newly hired, sort of like what you know what I'd done, you know, back uh, back starting, and uh, asked them about the process, and it's it's still, it, you know, they're fast tracking it, but it's still about four months to get people in from when you have some of these initial, yes, we want to hire you to your first day is X. Yes. You talked about FDA. You spent nine years there. What I want to know is what did that experience teach you as far as what, yeah. what were some of the advantages you feel like you took with you as you transitioned back into industry as a regulatory and quality leader? So regulatory, and, and most people in the in the space, I think, would tell you the same thing. Um, regulatory really is a trade. You learn it from people who are expert at doing it, and uh, everybody does it maybe a little bit differently. And it helps to have had my introduction to it at at a regulatory agency at FDA. Um, but it's 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 a way of uh, of thinking, and so uh, what. What the time at FDA specifically for for anybody who spent time at FDA, uh, what that what that provides for an organization, if you can find somebody who's ex FDA, they've been in the room when conversations were, were were had, and they may not have been in the room when the conversations that directly affect your product or or your type of um, uh, you know uh, company were discussed. Maybe they were at a different part of FDA, but. Some of it overall, there is a culture and there's a mindset at, at FDA about how you go about thinking through things. It's the same kind of thing with, let's say, engineering training. Uh, engineers are somewhat similar, partially because the type of people who go into engineering are somewhat similar to begin with. But then you get a, a certain kind of training, a, a certain set of tools that people develop over time. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, that's an engineer. He thinks like an engineer or same kind of thing for an accountant or somebody with an MBA or other sorts of toolkits. It's you've got a set of tools that you use. You know, um, think of it even somebody coming into your house, a plumber or an electrician. You know, um, it's somewhat distinct the tools that they show up with and and what they can do for you. And um, and that's sort of how I think about you know regulatory. It's a trade. It's it's you know I'm 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 not carrying a you know a tool belt that you know makes me look like a, a another type of you know tradesperson you'd normally run into but 
and there are some formal training programs, but even, even then really what you're doing is you're learning from somebody who's a master craftsman, so to speak in, in, in regulatory seen enough of how this can go and have a sense for what language is going to be acceptable in certain contexts, what language is problematic. It helps to have somebody who knows about that specific area because there might be nuances. Uh, but if you, if you can find somebody who's, who's been at FDA, especially for a, a number of years, it brings that mindset, that set of tools and, and that approach to problem solving uh, to bear. And uh, the, the best thing I would say for me, from my time at FDA that, uh, that I took from that was actually in the Office of Legislation. Uh, so 21st Century Cures uh, work was ongoing, and, and I was involved in setting up meetings for people like uh, Jeff Shuren and Janet Woodcock and Peter Marks with members of Congress while they were having some of these discussions be a fly in, on the wall in, in some discussions with, uh, uh, you know, either um, uh, con congressional staff or, you know, other folks in, in discussing what that legislation package was going to look like. And so while I didn't have a lot of input because of being fairly junior uh, uh, in, in those discussions, and I'm the person taking notes, getting coffee, you know, this kind of stuff, just having been in the room for those discussions changed my understanding about how some of these decisions get made, the way that FDA thinks about things at a very high level. And that was useful in the rest of the time that I had at FDA, as well as uh, the time outside of, um, outside of FDA, because uh, I was able to see senior leaders and how they thought about things. And so anybody who's at FDA, that would be the other piece of advice I'd give them in terms of, you know, the, the, the best thing they can be doing is being in junior roles, working with very senior people. So, you know, you can be in middle management, and I did some of that at, at FDA as well, but I didn't learn as much in middle management as I did when I was the guy getting coffee. Yeah, just because you're a sponge, you have the opportunity and the time to absorb uh, everything happening around you. It's got to be a, a distinct advantage for a company, though, hiring somebody ex-FDA when it comes to figuring out regulatory pathways and what the FDA looks for when it comes time for review and some of the pitfalls to watch out for so that you're not constantly doing these revisions over and over and over, right? I would think that's a huge advantage. Yeah, and, and getting some of that input early. And you can get some of that directly from FDA, uh, but definitely getting somebody who knows something about FDA, somebody who's even U.S. you know regulatory um, you know experienced, who's maybe not ex-FDA, and I, I've worked with a number of these folks as well who are very good. Um, it, it's going to help versus uh, just having somebody who's got general regulatory experience, which is also like it, it, it's a benefit. But if you can get somebody who's got U.S. specific regulatory experience especially if they're ex-FDA or you know, something like this to, to take a look, you're going to get much better input and a, and a much better sense about how to address certain things and what you need to look out for uh, from the beginning. And, and I can't tell you how many times, both at FDA I've seen this and on the outside, where a company goes and does a set of tests and they, they let their third party set up the tests. The third party doesn't really understand the device sets up some tests that end up killing animals. Mm. And then that uh, test report just goes maybe with a little bit of context to FDA. And I, I was an FDA reviewer at one point reviewing this, you know, you right. get this report and it, they killed a bunch of animals and they're saying, well, you know, we did some other tests and it, it's fine. <laughs> and you're like, it, it, 
eventually we got through that, but it takes yeah. a while if if you get to that point where you've you've and, and and the place you have to head that off is ideally before the test ever gets done to begin with. Because if you're gonna if you're doing the wrong set of tests and you haven't worked out your justification for why you're doing it, <clears throat> FDA doesn't necessarily have a, a, a great sense that you know what you're what you're doing. So whether whether it was the right test or the wrong test, if you've yeah. gone and done it and killed animals, and and this happens, you know, uh, unfortunately, then um, FDA is going to definitely give your product more scrutiny than they would if you had done the work up front to identify why certain testing wasn't appropriate, why it wasn't necessary before you knew that it was going to kill animals, because mm-hmm. based on the you know, the way the, the, the way the product works and the way the test works, it's not applicable. And oh, by the way, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's not going to give you meaningful, uh, you know, information about how the product should be used. A- FDA is going to have a much more favorable view to that. And that requires you to get some regulatory input or some subject matter expertise. Somebody who knows something about biocompatibility and knows something about your device, who's not just your third party test uh, facility. Uh, necessarily to you know to work with, and there are some really good third-party test facilities who do some of this work on behalf of sponsors. You know, I mentioned that you've you've had the opportunity to build teams internally for organization. <clears throat> you have a variety of consulting experience working with you know different sized companies, primarily startups who don't necessarily have in-house regulatory yet. What do companies get wrong about reg- regulatory affairs? Whether it's uh, their submission documentations or placing the you know an importance on the function. Um, timing of when to involve somebody from regulatory, what, what would you say? It's mostly going to be timing and you, you almost can't engage too early and, and you almost from the very beginning and, and even a lot of uh, incubators and I've worked with some, some incubators, uh, will find people like me who, who can provide some pro bono, uh, you know, kinds of support for very small startups. And that is going to be, uh, excellent. If you can get that, if you're a small startup, if you're early on, or if you're early in product development, get somebody with with a regulatory bent involved early to give you some high level feedback about things, because it's going to help you set set the stage for when you need to do tests, or maybe you need to have some interactions with FDA before you go and actually do the testing. And, and these are the kinds of things where you can go do the testing, you then present it to FDA. Then FDA tells you, well, we actually want this other test. We want you to do it differently. And now you're rerunning the test and spending more money and spending more time than if you'd gone to FDA or if you'd gotten some regulatory input early. Um, and that's sort of a mixed, it's, it's a mixed situation because if you've already done the tests and you're ready to go with the submission, that's probably your best bet at that point is to go with the submission with the understanding that FDA might tell you they don't like it, they want you to do a different test, they have other feedback for you. But if you've already done the testing, you're sort of stuck, you might as well move forward with a regulatory submission and see what FDA's you know, formal thoughts are. But if, if you haven't started the test yet, you have some time to, to think about how you want to structure that because you're doing other work or other things. And so you have a window of time, usually let's say 70 to 90 days, before you have to make a decision about initiating the testing, then you can usually go to FDA uh, and, and, and get that input. Now, FDA is a little bit delayed in certain product areas at the moment because of the coronavirus pandemic and a lot of the work they're doing around um, emergency use and uh, specific tools that are being used to fight the pandemic. But 
in general, that 70 to 90 day window is, is sufficient for certain t- types of products these days um, that might be longer. And, and FDA has recently put out some, um, you know, some information on this as well in terms of what those timelines look like for certain types of products that might be expect 120 days. And so just factor that in, in terms of if, if you're working on, and you're sort of laying out your testing plan, you're doing preclinical testing, you're doing actual clinical testing, figure out where in there you can interact with FDA, where you have enough information, enough of a protocol or plan in place that you could give something to FDA for them to take a look at and say, yeah, we think this is reasonable or make these tweaks. It's, it's going to save you a lot of headaches in the future um, if, if you can get that input uh, and if you can get that early. So sticking with this, as far as regulatory and regulatory um, changes, you know, obviously one of the hottest things right now is just what's going on with the EU MDR, how it was postponed. And now, like it or not, it's coming. And all these companies that have continued to scramble to uh, do their changeovers to the new EU MDR. Digital health is exploding. There's all these different guidances with digital health. What else do you see coming down the pipe? How do you see regulatory changing or evolving, uh, you know, in the next 12 to 18 months from your perspective? Yeah, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, there's a lot more uh, happening. I mean, I don't know that we'll see anything definitive in the area of, of AI and machine learning. FDA continues to, 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 to do, do some push in those directions. We know from what FDA said that their, their expectation is some of the work they're doing around pre-certification will start to apply, uh, hopefully, to products that are not simply software-based, but uh, software in a medical device as well. So these are some of the things that FDA has already messaged that, uh, that they're thinking about, that they're, that they're leaning towards, um, and, and expect that there's probably going to be a little bit more uh, there, there was a little bit of a, a, a tussle recently, um, uh, politically, I think, more than anything else, though. Um, yeah, a- a- FDA uh, released uh, some some uh, write-ups in, in the Federal Register, and there's some, some language on LinkedIn that's interesting around um, some, uh, uh, some proposed exemptions and things that were coming through in uh, sort of the 11th hour, let's say, for the last administration on, on January 15th. And, uh, you know, that it's, it's, it's nail biting reading. I mean, normally you go to the federal register and I even, I read guidance documents and talk about them and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's like a bedtime story, you know, for some, for, you know, it's like, it's the kind of thing that puts most people to sleep. This is a federal register notice that like a normal person can probably go and read and it won't put them to sleep. It's, it's really quite, uh, quite interesting that, you know, the kinds of language that's used there about, um, you know, about the process and, and what FDA is thinking is about this. But I do expect that we'll see some of either some of those products or other products where FDA is going to continue pushing towards um, exempting, uh, you know, broader categories of things. We just saw something along those lines for software where uh, where FDA's um, uh, pushed out, um, you know, some more information about what's going to fall outside of their purview for software. And it's sort of been true to you know to date, but they've they've definitely made that more firm in terms of what is going to be within their focus area for software reviews and what they're 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 considering to fall under enforcement discretion or entirely out of their jurisdiction. I want I want to transition our conversation to talk more about uh, a talent focus. Obviously, the MedTech Talent Lab, where we talk about all things talent. But I think you bring a unique perspective with the diversity of experience that you have in terms of um, 
both looking at it from from a company standpoint as well as you know a candidate standpoint. We, uh, you know, around the Anthony Michael Group, we're always preaching this term uh, or acronym EVP, Employer Value Proposition. In essence, when it comes to recruiting talent, thinking about what is so compelling, so differentiating, so unique that that message can stop, should stop somebody dead in their tracks who's doing a very similar job elsewhere, hopefully at one of your competitors, and make it a no-brainer for them to at least see and explore this heart, make it a no-brainer for them to have an exploratory conversation with you about the opportunity. What do you see company, tell, talk from your perspective as far as this idea of an employer value proposition, how to help companies think about this, and then more specifically, more granularly, how to help create uh, the, the value proposition to work on that specific regulatory team. Yeah, and I've, and I've had to do that from the inside, both, both at FDA and, um, and at Comitech to, to sell top candidates on joining the organization. And, uh, and a lot of it comes down to questions around what kind of influence they can have, especially if you're setting up uh, a something new, or let's say you're, you're starting to explore, let's say software, because we were just talking about you know, that area. And, and, and I've seen that be, be an effective uh, a value proposition for, for candidates where they, they are going to be the person helping to um, uh, forge a new path forward in an area. It's the kind of thing that, uh, that, that gets people uh, excited, uh, you know, oftentimes about joining a team, even, even in a relatively, you know, junior, you know, kind of, kind of a position. I mean, we're not even talking about, you know, bringing on people in management positions, but that, you know, we're, we're doing this thing and this is what we need a person, uh, you know, to help us, uh, uh, figure out. And, and we, we'd like you to be that person. And that, that's, um, you know, that I, I think that can be a, you know, a, a big selling point that the, the, the bigger thing, you know, from, from my perspective though, is, is really thinking about, um, less all of, less about all of the tangible, practical uh, uh, background and experience that a candidate has and more about how good a fit this person is going to be in the organization that you're building, not just for today and today's problem, but when you think about the next three to four years. And I think thinking much beyond that, and maybe even thinking three to four years is too long term for most of us to, to reasonably do. But, you know, I think thinking beyond about four years is, um, you know, is, is, more and more tenuous, uh, you know, in terms of uh, being able to do it even remotely effectively. But think about, is this a person, is this a skill set? Um, but, but more, more than just their skills, is this a, a person who's going to be a good fit within the organization? Uh, how, how are they going to be able to work with all of the other teams and, and personalities and people we've got? And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough thing because you've already got, a group of people usually, unless you're a very small startup, you know, your employee number one, maybe your single digits, um, you, you've already got a, a, a group of people on board and you need to ha- figure out how is this additional person that we're going to bring in, how's that person going to mesh with, with the rest of the group? And I think it's important to think about what that person is going to do to the culture of, of the organization. How are they going to do a, to affect the culture? How are they going to you know, move the needle in positive directions? And if you are only thinking about the skill set, you're only thinking about their experience and you're looking at the things that they've done in the past, I think you're going to end up 
dissatisfied with, with, with your hires. And, um, you know, I've, I've had a, a good track record and good experience bringing people in who, um, had, had a, that, that, that were a good cultural fit and you can train up uh, certain areas that might not be a, you know, perfect fit for what your needs are versus, you know, somebody who's got the perfect technical background, uh, but for whatever reason, and usually you get a sense of this. And I like Tim Ferriss's, you know, approach to this. It's like, you've got your, your head, your heart and your gut. And if any one of them is telling, you no, you should listen to it. Um, you know, it's harder to figure out what a yes, uh, feels or looks like, but, um, you know, I, I don't think that we give enough, uh, uh, space when doing some of these hiring, you know, decisions and, or making some of these hiring decisions and choosing who to bring into an organization. We don't give enough, uh, room for the heart and the, and the, and the gut. Uh, and one of the ways that we did that at FDA when I was there is, is we would have, um, a number of different folks involved in, you know, in the, um, you know, in the interviews, we'd have the, 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 the team that they would be working with involved in the interviews that, you know, we would have the teams that a manager would be, um, you know, overseeing interviewed by, you know, by the team. And, and I don't know that that necessarily happens as much, you know, out in the, um, out in the corporate world. And, you know, maybe there's, uh, you know, objective evidence around, you know, some of this and how useful it is. And, you know, in general, it's sort of, you know, who knows, I think when, when usually you're doing the hiring, um, you know, decisions. There's there are a lot of candidates who just aren't, for whatever reason, going to work out in the long term. But there's so much gold in in what you just said. I want to recap some of these things because you're de- you're in my opinion you're dead on. <clears throat> um, you mentioned a few things as far as your track record in hiring good cultural fits. One of the things that we're we're constantly talking about is what we term employer DNA or you know company DNA. In essence. Take a whiteboard and it, I don't care if you're three employees or 3,000 employees because you, you can always drop down a level, whether it's your department or the whole company as a whole. But what characteristics do your top performers, the people who really you, you believe are um, um, exemplifying, I guess, the characteristics that you want to continue to breed uh, to, to grow, right, to see more of, um, write all these characteristics up on the board. And circle the ones that you believe are common amongst your top performers. These are the characteristics that you want to be steadfast about growing, right? And everybody else who doesn't have those possess those characteristics, they're not the right fit. Because if you're trying to grow a, gr- a better group of a bigger group of what you believe to be, you know, the right individuals, that piece. So that's that's one piece. And I want to come back to why you think you've had a good cultural fit. But you mentioned, as far as when I was asking you about employer value proposition for regulatory, and you are casting the vision, especially when it comes to new product development, even if they're not the ones meeting directly with uh, the regulatory body, but they're a part of the opportunity to help bring the product to life, right? That's a big deal. I want to challenge you, though, for a minute. And I don't know if you have uh, an answer for this or not, but what about situations where new product development is few and far between right now and you still have to have a value proposition why somebody should come into a sustaining position in regulatory. Do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean we we had specifically set up uh some sustaining, you know, focused positions uh when when I was at Combatech and we had people who were interested. And 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 a lot of it uh and these were usually internal candidates. Um you you could bring in external candidates. I generally recommend 
you know, if, if you can find somebody who has experience with the organization already, it's probably going to be an easier sell for a sustaining uh, new product development is going to be an easier sell usually for external uh, 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 people. Um, I mean, new product development might be a good sell for internal people as well, but um, it, it's, it's, it's having um, a degree of autonomy, knowing how some of that uh, a team is going to work and having a sense of empowerment. And I think that's where for, for me and, and, and the way that I've seen that work successfully, if you're going out of your way to, to bring in candidates who you are, who you are empowering to make decisions, to, um, be the, be the voice of, you know, the product area and, um, and, and oversee the changes moving forward from a regulatory standpoint, mm-hmm. that, that can be a really good sell where, where you lose people, I think is if you're going to be, you know, a little bit more, um, you know, autocratic when it comes to sort of the day to day, at least mm-hmm. decisions, I mean, you definitely need, uh, at, at times, uh, you know, to, to, to get direction from senior leadership on, look, guys, this is what's happening. This is the direction. Let's figure out how to do it. Not, mm-hmm. you know, we're not talking about whether it's happening. We're, we're, we're now we're problem solving puzzle, you know, puzzling out exactly how we make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so there's, so there's, there's that, but really, um, you know, putting people in positions where they can solve puzzles. And most people yeah. in regulatory, whether they're engineers or not, they, they tend to be people who like solving puzzles. Mm-hmm. And if you think about regulatory challenges in that way, it's useful. And usually there's not one solution. It's not like this person is trying to find like the single way that it can be done. It's that you have a bunch of constraints and you do the best you can to, to communicate that to this person with a regulatory background and expertise and then they give you hopefully more than one, but usually there's one best solution from their perspective, but maybe there are other less good, but maybe for other reasons, they're the one that you decide to go with because it fixes other problems more. Um, well, let, let, let's say with, with, with less effort or fewer complications, you know, cause you, you might have harder constraints. Um, I love that it, it, puzzle piecing a puzzle solving a puzzle, then also just, um, playing to somebody's pain points. They want autonomy. They want to feel like they're uh, in charge of a project. And that's what sustaining is. It's, these are your products under your portfolio that you're responsible for the changes. Uh, I love that, uh, angle. Go back to the cultural thing. You said that you had pretty good success as far as hiring for a cultural fit. Will you talk more about that as far as why you think that is and kind of how you did it? Yeah, that it, it's to, to, to some extent, I think a piece of it is getting, more input than uh, maybe you think is even um, uh, necessary uh, generally because um, you know I think I, I think one of the challenges a lot of us run into is that that we um, under uh, value even if we do value it um, and, and maybe we value it highly but we tend to undervalue the input. Uh, from from other people and overvalue our own uh, perspective and you know and inputs and one of the ways to counterbalance that at least the way that I've I've tried to do that is to get more input from other people 
um, or additional people, uh, get, get additional people to give me input because now I haven't just heard it from one person who I can sort of dismiss because, well, I disagree. Mm -hmm. Now I've heard it from two people. Well, it's harder to dismiss it from two people. Now I've heard it from a third person. Well, I've really got, I've really got to re readjust my radar or maybe there's something I'm just missing from my perspective and my angle on things where, and, and it doesn't necessarily mean that something's going to be a no-go in terms of, uh, you know, a particular candidate, but, um, you know, but typically, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be better served if you, um, give it a little bit of extra time to get the right person in than if you get the person that's going to solve your immediate challenge in right away, because you really want to think about this again, like, 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 like I said, in that, let's say three to five year window, maybe three to four year window. This is a person ideally that you're trying to hire in. You want them to be with the organization for, let's say three to four years. I, I know right now the turnover rate for people is faster than that, but mm -hmm. I think in a good organization or, you know, a good startup, you know, whatever the situation is, if you're hiring somebody in full time for the amount of effort and energy and risk that you take on to do that, you should be looking for a three to four year higher sort of target on kind of that low end. I, I think anything less than that, less than three years is going to be, you know, really rough. Definitely less than two years is going to be a problem. Like you're just going to spend so much time and energy and effort on just finding people that like, uh, you're, you're sacrificing your future time for, you know, today's convenience. We talk about mishires and the cost, the cost of a mishire, both direct and indirect. And there's a gentleman uh, who I'm very fond of, Dr. Brad Smart. He authored the book Top Grading. And he, I think he says it's between, roughly between 13 and like 24 times a, a person's salary is the co potential cost of a mishire. So when you think in those terms <clears throat> and you talk about what you're saying as far as not just looking at the projects and the challenges that you have in front of you now, but where is the company going? What are you going to need help with you know, down the line? Companies a lot of times are better augmenting their staff with temporary consulting help to finish the task at hand versus make a mishire on, on the longer term. It sounds like you agree. Yes, with the caveat that I also see companies do it the other way, where you have a certain staff requirement and you've had it for, let's say, years. You know, you didn't expect it to be a permanent, you know, uh, a baseline. But now you've got mm -hmm. more consultants or as many consultants as you have permanent hires, or you've got a certain number of permanent consultants or, or, or contractors. They're not permanent, let's say, but you, they've been around or you've had a certain number of them around for, for a period of time. And it turns out you do really need the help that they're providing. Usually you're going to be better served trying to find somebody who can do that for you on a permanent basis and get away from you know, the sense that this, because in a very large organization in particular, and you, you see this at FDA, you see this at a lot of places where there are different buckets of money. Okay. And right. so this right. is the sort of the problem you run into is the bureaucracy here where we don't want a permanent hire, but there's plenty of money for contractors and consulting help. And so you, you also don't want to get into that trap either where you really would be best served in just saying, we need somebody who we can hire for three to four years, maybe, or maybe it won't last beyond that. But if you know you're going to need somebody at some reasonably high percent of their capacity over the course of, let's say, three to four years, you're probably best off just, just getting a permanent hire in and, and doing the work on finding that person.
I'm talking about what you're saying as far as rushing the hire if it's not necessarily the right one. Because I think companies get desperate. I think companies get desperate where they know they've got these challenges that need to be dealt with. They need to hire and they end up sacrificing or settling versus had they just kept their search going a little longer. And if they truly were in dire straits, they could have filled the gap with contracting help and while they found the permanent help. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Uh, just a couple more questions for you, Dave, because I, I really appreciate your time being here. But you've had the opportunity to be promoted time and time again yourself. Yep. Um, you were senior director before you left Comitech, right? Yep. What mistakes do you see up-and-comers making uh, who are striving? They want, they're striving to be promoted. Um, you know, they're trying to follow a similar journey to yourself and many other leaders out there. What mistakes have you seen over time that hopefully people listening to you today can stop and think about and maybe not make the same? It's 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 it, almost the 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 mirror of the advice, right? That we we just went through with a company where think about the think about the longer term, think about the opportunities, think about what this means three to four years from now, right? For the for the organization, it's the same thing for an individual. Um, don't do the thing that is uh, going to put you in a better position today and tomorrow, where you're going to have fewer opportunities in in three to four years. What do you mean by that? I've I've turned down opportunities on multiple occasions that um and early early on in my career in particular and that's where I think it's it's maybe it's important all the way along but but definitely early on um I've turned down money for opportunity. Um so I've taken the position that pays less because it puts me in a position where I have more opportunity. And, and I've done that, I've done that time and time again, and it's, it's always served me well. And I would, that, that's the recommendation I would, I would make to, um, to young people in, in regulatory and in other fields is, um, look, I mean, sometimes you've, you've got to take an opportunity that's in front of you. Um, but when, um, when I've, when I've, looked for open doors, I've gotten myself in trouble. I've, I've mostly been trying to figure out all the reasons that a door should be closed and then avoid it and then look for something else. And so um, just be careful about open doors. A door that's open doesn't mean you should walk through it. You know, um, uh, you know, I, yeah, maybe, may, maybe you can, maybe it's a good, it's a good idea, but um, I've walked through an open door, you know, early on in my career that it was like, this was a mistake. And I knew it very early on and then trying to figure out how you, oh, <clears throat> again, it's that, it's that head, heart, uh, gut thing, you know, when, um, you know, when you're, you know, when you're unhappy and you're, and you're, you know, stomachs in knots doing, you know, doing the day-to-day -day work, you know, you know, you should, you should figure out, you know, some way to, you know, unravel that and get out of it. And I think most of us, same as, you know, with work relationships and, and, um, uh, as well as personal relationships, I think sometimes we stay in a bad relationship longer than we ought to, because it's the thing that today, like, I don't have to think about it as, as, as much today if I just stay, but I know like, and you, you'll, you'll know, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know the right way to you know, to, to articulate other, other than you, you'll know, you know, it's, <laughs> and if you know, then, then take action like today, because otherwise the problem is it's amazing how quickly the decisions you make today 
become your situation a year or two years or three years down the line because you, you make the little decision today not to do the thing that you know you ought to do. And next thing you know, months have gone by and then years have gone by. And so the, you know, the, 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 the definite advice is, look, take action today. Do the thing today, even if it's painful, that is going to put you in a better position tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, three to four years from now. And it's, you know, and if, it, if, if it's going to pay you a little bit less today, to take the opportunity that you know is going to afford you more possibilities, more opportunities. I mean, I I turned down um, a different job offer to go to FDA because I knew FDA was going to open up more doors. I just knew, you know, because of what the two competing offers were. But the other job would have paid me more money on an, you know, in terms of salary than than the job at FDA. Um, when I was at FDA, I had opportunities to, to, to go and, and do work in a different center, but I was going to be doing work uh, uh, as an individual contributor, but I'd had other opportunities to, to move into more of a managerial kind of a role or do things that were going to open up more doors. I ended up going and actually working at that time uh, and spending some time in the Office of Legislation, getting people coffee, arranging meetings, you know, this kind of stuff where... I, I, I gave up a higher paid opportunity in, in a different area to go do this, which it opened up a lot of doors. And I knew, I knew that it would, and it's just, you know, pay attention for those things that are going to open up opportunity in the future and, and, and go for it, even if it's going to pay you less today. I couldn't agree with you more. As a matter of fact, I have my own regrets from back in the day of, uh, I had a, a path to uh, choose and I chose the wrong path. So I, I get it. Um, I want to wrap up by asking why you decided to leave uh, and pursue, pursue Mr. Regulatory full-time and kind of get out of work for a company and, and uh, run your own show. And more and elaborate a little bit more about what you're trying to do with Mr. Regulatory. Absolutely. Um, I, the the vision remains to to, to do uh, education uh, training and and uh, part part of it is is to try to get a group of millennials that are based at FDA today, um, uh, give them an, an opportunity to um, get information about the guidance documents that are out there. If they continue to put out the guidance documents uh, like they have at the same kind of pace uh, as we move forward. Um, this generation of you know of people sitting down and reading something like a guidance document is just painstaking. But if you can throw on a video and listen to it while you do something else, you might actually get you know something something out of it. And so I know for me, um, you know, I'm I'm, I'm a bit of a, a YouTube junkie. So uh, you know, I try, trying to try trying to fill trying to fill that same that same kind of uh, uh, a niche and, and need for people who uh, might. Uh, get more content that's useful for them. So it's it's a fairly niche um, you know area, but I've got a hundred subscribers on uh, on uh, on YouTube, which is sort of shocking, you know, to me, I guess. Well, it shows you that there's interest and a need, so that's great. So so that's one is 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 to do this, and then the second piece is um, and and the same kind of uh, in the same kind of vein of of what I've said, uh, you know, here here before. Do the thing that, that that gives you the most opportunity, but also with the caveat, um, if it's possible, work with the people that you want to work with. Um, and uh, I'm in a I'm in a position where I can um, 
set my hours, uh, set, set my schedule and work with who it is that I want to work with. And, and this was an opportunity to do that. And the people that I was working with at Convitec were excellent. It was, it was always, uh, you know, a very good, uh, working relationship that I had with the, um, you know, with the team that reported to me with, uh, with my managers, uh, you know, while I was there, I, you know, I have a lot of love for the people who are, um, you know, who were there. And I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunities I had while, while I was there and uh, for what we were able to accomplish when, you know, while I was there. Uh, with the skill set and background I have, the opportunity is to focus on pre-market uh, medical device uh, and, and do that in a broader way, focused on higher risk medical devices than than the niche that Combatech is in. Um, at, at the beginning, when I joined, there were some really intractable issues they were dealing with that needed somebody like me. And, and it was, it was a good hire for, let's say that three to four year window. I was there for a little over four years and, um, <clears throat> and it was a good run. And I was able to solve challenges for them early on and in, in the middle term. And, uh, and, and as we got, uh, you know, close to that, to that four year, uh, anniversary, it, it became clear that, uh, what I should be doing was, uh, you know, focusing in some other directions because uh, Combatech had had what they needed from me, and there were other people who could continue to carry that ball forward while I focused on some things that were going to be a better fit for for me moving forward. And you know, family considerations in terms of where where you live and all of this definitely plays plays a role. And I'm in a place in my career where I have the flexibility to to do what I want to work with who I want and to work where I want. Um, and so, uh, so I've taken that, uh, I've taken that opportunity and, um, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's been, it's, it's been good. And I think most of us just, just to give you a piece of advice from, I think this is Elon Musk, uh, you know, uh, most of us, uh, over, um, uh, weight the risk involved in, in making a change or in doing something. And, um, you, you need to also think about the risk of not doing something, the risk of not, uh, you know, of, of not pursuing something, especially for people who are young. But even, even if you've got a family, I mean, I've got, you know, I've, I've married with, with, with kids, you know, there's definitely a consideration and, and responsibility on, on that side of things. And that affects your career decision making. Uh, you know, but I would say, uh, you know, if you have an opportunity that, that, that you know you should pursue, figure out how you can do it rather than, uh, uh, you know, sort of dismissing it out of hand. And, uh, and it's worked out. I want to give you sincere kudos for just not only the career and the experiences you've gained over time and the other lives that you've helped impact, but just all the great, exciting stuff ahead for you uh, with Mr. Regulatory. We'll, we'll go ahead once we release the show and put um, the show notes uh, excuse me, mis- uh, information about misregulatory in the show notes, if that works for you, so people can take a look and have access to that. And again, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for all the nuggets that you shared today. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. For more content-rich episodes, log on to theanthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.